Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American idea. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're here, March tenth. Uh, another day, another podcast. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, I told you I see you soon after a week off. We had two and a couple of days here. Uh, another exciting episode lined up. You and I are going to briefly talk about the uh, COVID relief bill, the latest COVID relief bill that was just passed through the Senate a few hours ago. Talk about the House actually had gone back to the House and passed. So yeah, it gets through uh, Congress, I suppose, a few hours ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about a few other developments up on Capitol Hill, but most excitingly, we are joined by another guest in this episode, Jeff Kerchik, who is a former high school classmate of ours and an author. And so we're going to talk about his book a little bit and some of his takes on some cultural issues. Uh, but before we get into that, I need to remind everyone out there that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking guys at Cannon Hill Woodworking, uh, making handcrafted, high-end quality furniture here in Boston since uh, 2018. I was actually, someone today was asking me how I know these guys. And at my old house in Southie, they built me a bar in the middle of my apartment. You can speak to the quality of that bar. bar. Phenomenal. Yeah, holds a lot of things, and it's really nice looking. Exactly. So we can attest firsthand uh, about the the quality of their craftsmanship. And if you are interested in purchasing a a high-end desk or table, you can check them out on Instagram at Cannon Hill Wood um, or CannonHillWoodworking.com. All right, Ricky. So at long last, the bill that you and I have been talking about for it feels almost like a couple months at this point. pretty much since uh, President Biden was inaugurated, the COVID stimulus relief bill, $1.9 trillion final price tag was just passed a couple of hours ago, signed into law by President Biden and should go into effect over the coming weeks. So great success in a lot of ways for President Biden and Democratic leadership. Thoughts? How are you feeling? Yeah, it's... um... It's, I mean, certainly re- relief that this relief is going to get to a lot of people who need it. I, th- I know. I didn't mean to do that. It just, it, whatever. It's been a long <laughs> yeah, day. That sounds like you had that like written down. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but totally intended. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's that, there's definitely like a sigh of relief. I'm glad that it got done. There were, you know, a couple of different avenues in which things could have sort of fallen apart or stalled out. Um, and I'm certainly glad to see that, that it didn't go that route. Um, again, it's probably a good reminder that it went through the reconciliation process instead of um, the standard Senate confirmation, which would have, res- which would have required 60 Senate votes instead through this weird thing that applies to budgets. You only need a majority in the Senate. And of course, with the 50-50 split, you get the tie-breaking vote goes to the vice president. Um, so that's how it came out of the Senate uh, with a few changes. Um, we talked about sort of mansions outside power, outsized power in this um, in this sort of situation, and he, and he certainly wielded it 
to reduce some benefits that he thought were kind of uh, un- uh, that he thought were sort of unnecessary. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, we can, I think we need to take a little bit more time to digest the specifics, but anyways, so that's, that's one piece of it. Um, so there's, there's that side, but then for me, there's always this like kind of apprehension, um, because I think the messaging around this bill is going to be very, very important. Um, because, especially because it comes out, uh, with no Republican support. So I think about this in a lot of the same way that I thought about the affordable care act in that, um, it's actually like, it's a good thing. A lot of people are generally in favor of something like this. Of course, no one knows really what's in it. It's 800 pages long or however long it is, maybe more. Um, but when you don't, when, you know, half of the sort of country's leaders are going to be saying, this is wasteful. This doesn't have anything to do with COVID. Um, this is going to destroy the country, destroy the economy. And they're going to be harping that message. Um, depending on how things sort of go in the next couple of months, whether or not they're related to this bill is going to be irrelevant because the messaging um, and how people internalize it is going to be very important. That's something I'm going to watch for. Yeah. I I would put a lot of that fault at the feet of Biden and the Democrats. And this is not something new that I've mentioned from the very first time in the show that we talked about it. I said that I was hopeful that President Biden would live up to all his rhetoric on the campaign trail and after his victory and that he was going to work with congressional Democrats. He didn't. Uh, The Democrats came out with their $1.9 trillion plan two months ago, and it got passed today, $1.9 trillion. And while things were, like you mentioned, altered within the bill, there was essentially zero compromise with any Republican leaders. And it didn't, and it didn't get one Republican vote in either the House or the Senate. Even Obama's plan, his stimulus bill uh, in 2009, it got three Republican votes in the Senate. To, to, so for like Biden to come along and he couldn't gain one Republican vote in either House, that's not a great look. And it's it's no surprise to me. I mean, I'm all fired up about this and I don't mean to be, but I, I just said from the beginning, I was hopeful that Biden would live up to his word and try to work with across the aisle. He hasn't. And all it's going to do is, is make the gulf wider between the parties. And if I'm a Republican, a moderate Republican now, if I'm the Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, and I have come out and had your back on a lot of things and voted for your nominees consistently, and you can't even give me the, the time of day and, and try to take some ideas and incorporate them into your plan. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, Republicans, a group of 10 moderate Republicans came out with a plan that was $618 billion. And whether or not that was enough, there was no compromise at all. You said yourself, like, hey, maybe we can settle around 1.2, 1.3. You know, Larry Summers, as we talked about before, I'd come out and said, I think 1.9 is too much. But it's what we ended up with was the 1.9. Like I said, there was no movement. And you have House Leader Kevin McCarthy coming out just you know, an hour or so ago and saying, this isn't a rescue bill. It isn't a relief bill. It is a laundry list of left-wing priorities that predate the pandemic and do not meet the needs of American families. It's I, when you just kind of disrespect the the opposition party, you're not going to get their support in your messaging. Yeah, well, it's one of those you got to give respect to get respect, right? So, I mean, I per, personally, I I I get that, and I also like you was hopeful that there would just be more like a converse, more of a conversation. I I I personally could also see like a you know somebody coming back to a $1.9 trillion package with like a $6 billion offer and someone being like, all right, so you're not serious about, 
You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what, what, you know, if I tell you the price tag for something is like 1.9 trillion and you're like, how about 600 billion? You're, you're just going to be like, all right, well, what's the point? We're not going to talk about this any further. So I, I, I mean, I can, I can see there being something to that. I've also just been surprised at like the, the pace that Biden has just been doing everything. I was kind of expecting a little bit more of a sleepy Joe Biden. I'll be a little more measured and take my time with things. And he's just been kind of rocking and rolling here um, since day one. Uh, But I I think your point on, you know, what is this set this administration up for in terms of any future compromises? I I think it's a, it's totally a fair one. Um, I suppose the one thing I would challenge is the idea that like, a lot of the measures in this package are random um, sort of Democrat wish list, laundry list items that were snuck in here. And I think, I, I, I think that there, you, you know, you can, you can kind of argue um, two ways for that, right? Because there is a lot to say that because many of these democratic priorities had not been incorporated into sort of federal spending in the past, we found ourselves in the situation that we are in now, like, you know, essentially assistance for childcare or, um, you know, boosted unemployment benefits in, in certain situations or, you know, honestly, I really shouldn't talk too much about this because I don't know the specifics, but I do know there's a lot of stuff that's intended to like make everyday Americans more secure in their lives and in, in their livelihoods that, uh, you know, one week into a pandemic, not everybody is like, I'm, you know, I'm out of savings. I don't have, I can't pay rent. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I feel like Biden and Democrats felt a little more comfortable just jamming this down Republicans in Congress's throat, as opposed to Obama, who really tried for weeks and months to gain Republican support and didn't get nearly as much as he, as he had hoped, despite getting some, uh, it would credit to him for, for trying. In, in that sense. I, but Biden didn't try and Democrats largely didn't try. And while that personally frustrates me as someone that wants more compromise up on Capitol Hill, I will say that I think they felt more confident in it because this bill is overwhelmingly popular. <laughs> They're just the vast majority of Americans I've seen anywhere from 60 to 75% are in favor of this bill. And whether it's uh, they wanted to get it done by I believe March 14th, that there were certain unemployment benefits that are set to expire. Mm-hmm. So we want to get that bill done by this date, which, you know, credit to them for the urgency in getting it done. So people's unemployment doesn't expire. That will continue, um, like boosted unemployment benefits will continue, I think, through September. Uh, and there are like airlines, transit, like all came out in favor of like, this is going to help us save jobs. And uh, you mentioned a number of things uh, going to childcare. There was another, a couple uh, other provisions I wanted to to note that are haven't been talked about as much, but I saw in a couple of places that I thought were really interesting is that there's a segment of money, something like $60 billion, I think, going to shore up some pensions for like, uh, for businesses that were struggling to meet their, their, the pension, uh, like deposits. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's like, that's one of those things that probably, because it's only a drop in the bucket of $1.9 trillion, it's, it's not going to get a lot of attention, but for a lot of people, seniors, like making sure that they have their pension that they earned, the government showed that up and that's great. And there was another thing that there was, I think $5 billion going to help disadvantaged farmers, which uh, I believe about half of them are, or a quarter of them are black. 
and so it's it's things that we have kind of talked about maybe you and I should talk about it more where you know Ollie mentioned reparations when he was on a few episodes ago and while that word sometimes seems like a you know third wire word that no one really wants to touch I, I do feel like there are ways you can do things to lift up minority communities particularly black communities that have been historically disenfranchised I mean dislike uh disadvantage uh, disadvantage right and, and give them targeted relief funds and so it, this bill is just to help disadvantage farmers but it's going to help thousands of black farmers uh, so it's good it's good for all of those type of people so in that sense and you know fourteen hundred dollars in relief checks there's not going to be many people myself included that are going to complain when we get those checks in our bank accounts in in a few weeks so the bill was largely popular i am frustrated with the process that it went through I think it's far too big. I wouldn't have voted for it, but Biden and Democrats are banking on his popularity that, you know, there's not going to be a lot of backlash to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's that much more to say at this point. I think it will be interesting. I mean, the pro- so part of the problem is these absolute behemoth texts. It's like it's right. so hard to figure out what's in there. And and honestly, it's a little disconcerting that you know that the majority of people re- like voting on this didn't read it for or against. Um, no, I mean, we so, mentioned that with the for the, the HR1 for the People Act just a couple yeah. of days. So, yeah, that's not only is that baffling that one, that most of our lawmakers didn't read the bill that they just voted for. Uh, two, I guarantee you they don't know much of where like that $1.9 trillion is actually going. But now the government like organization like the people in like the administration of the government in the executive branch the people that none of us ever talk about they got to figure it out they got to read the bill and figure out where this money is coming from and how to get it into the right people's and businesses hands so in that sense i don't envy them at all but they're like the unsung heroes of all these things that like the career you know bureaucrats and especially in the Trump era, they were demonized as like the deep state, but these people that are just like career workers in government that they're trying to help people, like though they're pulling the levers of the government to make things actually work. Uh, they're going to have a heck of a few weeks in front of them. I am sure that there are going to be um, like foul ups on their end and those will get the headlines of like, look at this business that got all this money that shouldn't have got it. And these other businesses will be crying because they haven't got their money, you know? And it's like, they're just people trying to like <laughs> trying to do the best they can with this. Yeah. Right. 1.9 trillion is a, is a huge number to fathom, but, but also like we said, like there were some changes made to it, but somehow that number never seemed to change. Oh, no so budget. Un- unclear exactly how, how they, how they came up to that number or, or what exactly that it means. Um, I think, I think, I guess if I'll, if I, if I have a final word, um, something that we'll ha- you know certainly have to keep an eye on like you said the larry summer sort of saying this is an um, amount of money that may be enough to overheat the economy and we could be looking at some rapid inflation i think we know uh you know the government's definitely going to have to to sell a bunch of bonds in order to raise some of this cash and so there there you know bond market impacts can can certainly ripple through the economy as the economy like this when i say that i mean like the stock market and, and that kind of shit so um not necessarily stuff that everyday people worry about but definitely stuff that has implications for everyday people's lives um so yeah it's something you definitely have to keep an eye on um but it's a one of those we'll we'll wait and see hasn't happened in the last like 20 years so we'll see 
It's something it's insane. Like if you think about it in the last 365 days, Congress has spent something like $6 trillion on the economy. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. And it, for me, it's impossible for me to wrap my head around that kind of money. And, but it seems like Ricky, most of Congress has your opinion and they're just shrugging their shoulders and saying, what even is money? What is money? All right. Uh, a few other things that I just want to touch on. A couple more of Biden's cabinet nominees were confirmed by the Senate today. Uh, Marsha Fudge was uh, confirmed as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And, you know, her mission is uh, really to tackle some of the systemic inequalities that exist within uh, our, our housing. That's another thing that <laughs> people get behind the scenes here. That's something I want to do a deep dive on at some point. I think I mentioned that to you before. Um, but it'll be really interesting to track her role in something that we, you and I have talked about before, some of these quote unquote lesser cabinet members, but actually have some of the bigger impacts on people's lives. So Marsha Fudge can confirm today. And then shout out Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland confirmed as the US Attorney General five years after being nominated to the Supreme Court and not even getting a hearing. What a difference five years makes for Merrick Garland. <laughs> he got a confirmation, just not the one he was just looking for. Yeah, a little bit different, but. Hopefully, good. yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess at some point, if, if if being the U.S. Attorney General is a disappointing, is your consolation prize, right? Yeah, you've got a heck of a career. Yeah. All right. When we come back, we will welcome Jeff onto the show and get a chance to to hear from him. So we now welcome to the program, Jeff Kerchick. Uh, Jeff is a former high school classmate of ours. He then went on to Princeton University and has been in sales for much of the last decade. Um, and most excitingly, recently came out with a book on sales called Authentic Selling, How to Use Principles of Selling in Everyday Life, which we will talk about later in the interview. But uh, before we get into all that, welcome to the program, Jeff. Yeah, it's great to see you guys again. Uh, it's been it's been a long time. It has been a long time. We're we're excited to get to talk to you in general and more specifically about some of uh, the issues that are kind of out in the ether these days. I know you have a lot of thoughts about things, so we're yeah. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, first author on the podcast. It's true. We, we don't. I don't know many authors personally. This is, this is kind of exciting. Yeah. Uh, our, yeah, that, that, that's cool. I mean, I, I, uh, I've been a big fan of the podcast. I'm not just saying that because I'm on the air, but uh, I've, I've been listening. And the fact that I'm the first author, that, that, means, that means a lot to me, considering that I admire what you guys are doing. Beautiful. All right. Uh, so before we get into the book, though, you've had, before you even started writing the book, you have been doing some things creatively over the past couple of years. Uh, specifically, you started a blog a couple of years ago. And uh, the blog touches on a lot of things. Some of them are personal, some of them are more current events. Um, and just even like me going back through your blog, like looking at some of the, the titles of your posts, you said things like the importance of embracing adversity and dialogue, um, the antisocial reality of social media, partisanship will be the death of us if we let it, a clarification of centrism, like all of these things while they're touching on different topics, seem to me to have a similar theme, which is also kind of a theme of what we're trying to do on the podcast. So I, I'd be curious to hear like what 
prompted you or inspired you to start the blog and, and kind of get some of these conversations going? Sure. Um, I would say it's twofold. So one is that I was always interested in writing. I did creative writing in college. And I think a lot of people, you know, made fun of me for, you know, going to a, a pretty good school and and focusing on creative writing. They felt like that was kind <laughs> of a job you to do with that degree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the, that was a kind of a waste of money and, and time. But um, the other thing too is as, as far as those articles go, like growing up, I wasn't a very political person. You guys know my older brother. He's a political journalist and he's, you know, traveling all over the world and meeting all these political leaders and doing all that stuff. And I was always into sports. I, I wasn't into politics. And I actually, I felt like I was forced into politics because what, what ended up happening was opinions that I would express. I felt like uh, very frustrated that I would get shut down in conversation based on, let's say like immutable traits about me. Uh, so for example, uh, this was maybe five or six years ago, a uh, gentleman went to Otto Warmbier, uh, went to North Korea and, and was murdered in North Korea. And there was an article in the Huffington Post uh, and somebody wrote about how he died because of his white privilege. And I thought that that was kind of an absurd thing to say about somebody that, you know, right after they die. And I voiced an opinion and was told that because I was white, I shouldn't, you know, be more or less shouldn't have an opinion on this matter. And I, I thought I found that ridiculous because um, surely there are many black people who probably actually, I would guess a majority of black people probably would agree with me. Um, and your skin color shouldn't necessarily dictate what your views are. And as I kind of noticed this happening more and more, not only to myself, but also just in the, you know, the broader sphere, I thought it was frustrating. Um, being in sales, I know that the way that you get your ideas across is not to tell people that they're stupid or that they're wrong or that they don't have an opinion. I'll, I would never be able to sell to a customer by saying, you're not qualified to have an opinion on my product, so just buy it. That would never work. So it shouldn't be any different when it comes to dialogue. If you're trying to sell your ideas, you should act uh, with salesmanship. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, actually. It was because of the worsening political dialogue uh, in our country. And so then you, you put the blog out there and then you're also active, I would say, on, on social media and trying to engage in some of these conversations. And have you found, what have you found really? You've been doing this, like I said, for a couple of years now. It Over those couple of years, the national dialogue has not improved. Uh, so like, what, what have you found kind of putting yourself out there in that sphere? I imagine there's a lot of frustration. So if, if that's the case, why have you continued to do it? Why do you continue to persevere in writing blogs and in, in dealing with this stuff on social media? Uh, like what, yeah, what, what do you hope to gain out of it? What are you gaining out of it? Sure. Um, so there was a period of time where on social media, I was really actually proud of kind of the conversations that I would foster. And I would say that was at a time where I had more time and maybe energy and patience um, and an ability to, um, have more empathy and to really try to engage with people in a meaningful way and really to not tolerate if even um, some of my friends would be abusive to one another. Like I, I had kind of, uh, I, I was very proud of the idea that like being able to foster good conversations because social media is really not a good place for having these types of conversations right. at all. Um, but what I've learned really is actually that it's better to channel my energy in a more constructive way, which is like with the writing and things like that, because um, social media is it's a it's performative, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a it's a 
Um, I think a lot of people don't want to be embarrassed on social media uh, when they're having these conversations. So their ability to be patient and to really ask the questions they need to ask often goes out the window because they don't want to look bad in front of a big audience. Whereas in like, um, like a podcast, like what we're doing now, uh, there's a big audience, but like we're being very deliberate. We're like setting aside an hour to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Like we know that we will be able to fully flesh out our thoughts. We'll be able to be respectful. Um, and same thing when I'm writing something like it, it's much more, it, it serves me better to like actually just voice an opinion and not attack people and just kind of express it that way rather than get into the the back and forth. So I've, I've tried to tone down the social media a little bit because, um, you know, you need to have a lot of patience and time to make that work well for you, I think. Yeah, I think that's an, uh, probably an understatement. But so would you say that it's been an evolution from being more active on social media to more of a blog form? And then obviously now with a book, is, is that really how you view it of like, how do I best have these conversations and try to engage with people um, in, a, in a civil manner? The best way is perhaps now like through a book. Is that part of the motivation? I think so. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't. I didn't like plot this in my mind. Um, I became passionate about the topic, like I said, because I, I feel like you have to be political, right? I think that's something that you guys have talked about, even in some of your episodes, how yeah. you have no choice but to be political. And um, you know, with the book, I real. I, I guess with the book, I, I I realized like there's a there's something that I know about selling that's related to dialogue. Um, and that people often don't view themselves as salespeople, right? right? Um, you know, I know Ricky, for example, has been working in the energy space. You know, Ricky might not view himself as a salesperson, but there are times in his life where I'm sure he has to sell ideas to other people, or even like if he's talking to his girlfriend about where they want to get dinner or something like you need to look at yourself as a salesperson and everything that you do. And anyway, where I'm going with that, Brendan is, um, I realized that, people don't have much sales acumen when they have political dialogue. They're not interested in, um, they're not interested in getting, uh, in learning anything. They're interested in being right. And what, what most salespeople know is that you get rejected like 95% of the time. And to be good at sales, you have to be good at listening. It's the number one most important skill. You need to have empathy for the customer. Um, these are all, I could go on and on, but you get where I'm going with this is that if you want to be successful at, sales, those are the things that matter. So why is it any different for your ideas? You know, if you go into a conversation, just trying to tell the other person why you're right, they could actually believe that you're right, but not admit it because they want it to be their own idea. And it's this idea I call inception where like in the, in the movie yeah. where they come to it on their own. So. Yeah. That sort of that difference between like getting somebody to give up in the face of your, you know, argument rather than saying like to actually come around and to hold the ideas that you hold and to sort of be able to draw the same conclusion from the, you know, the premises that, that you outlined. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, and with that comes something of a non-attachment to your own ideas. You know, when I'm selling a product, uh, if I were to come into every conversation, assuming that I know what's best for the customer, that won't go well for me because the questions that I ask and the agenda that I have in that conversation is driven around an assumption that I, that I don't know is true. Um, there are many conversations I've had with clients where I figure out right away, you're not a good fit. I, I don't even want to waste my time with you and I don't want to waste your time with me. 
Um, so you need to have a non-attachment to your own ideas. Sometimes you need, if you want to have a good authentic relationship in sales, if you want to ask the right questions, you need to go into it with a good faith intention to help that person, not to sell your product. And the same needs to be true in your dialogue. You need to have, uh, let's call it 99% certainty about your ideas, if you want to call it that even. I mean, I, I think it's safer if you want to call it 90%. Um, the more conviction that people have in their ideas, the more violent they get, um, which is ultimately the thing we need to avoid. Um, the more, you know, that's where problems happen. When people have the utmost conviction, it's like religion and all these other things, uh, governing philosophies, all the wars that we've had throughout human history are based on a certain set of people believing in their ideas so much that they want to kill other people for not having the same ideas. So non-attachment, I'm not saying that, you know, there are obviously things that we need to have attachment to, like treating people with respect is probably something we can all agree on. But as for the things where there's gray area, the things that not everybody agrees on, that we all that we'll always disagree on, we need to have some non-attachment to our ideas in order to sell to to sell effectively. I think we can agree on that. All right. Well, so with with that, it was I think a nice uh, intro into into what you've been up to and you know a lot of the thinking that you've been doing. And you know part of the reason that we wanted you on the on the show today is we were we've been thinking about some things that you know we noticed that you've written on. Um, so I think we'll talk a little bit about the political stuff towards the back half here. Um, but a few stories that uh, had caught my eye over the past couple of weeks that I wanted to. Um, I'm not sure if address is the right word, but I, I did want to bring up and kind of get your thoughts on the, on the situations. I have, as always, plenty of thoughts of my own, but um, so the, 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 the three different, I'll let you decide what, what where we want to start. Um, and uh, so the three different situations or stories of the, of the past couple of weeks were Smith college, um, Mr. Potato head losing the Mr. Um, and uh, the cancellation of Dr. Seuss. Um, well, okay. I mean, honestly, my answer is going to be similar for all three of them. Um, I mean, if we want to start with Dr. Seuss or let's go with potato head, honestly, uh, potato, head. potato head, because it's just the most random, ridiculous thing. Look, I think it's a little, look, I, I'm just going to come right out of the gate here. I, I'm not a fan of cancel culture, but I also don't think it's necessarily productive for me to rail against the people who partake in it. Um, because to my own philosophy, if I were to just criticize those people, I'm not going to change their minds and, and nothing substantive will happen, right? So I actually, I'm going to do a full 180 on you. I think it's everybody else that needs that's culpable here. Because when it comes to what's going on with, with the cancellation or change of all these things, it's, uh, let's, let's face it, most people don't, okay, if you disagree with this assumption, feel free to tell me I'm off. I don't think most people are on board with this stuff. I think a lot of people are nodding their heads out of fear because out of selfish interest, they feel that if they speak their mind, that it's going to be bad for them personally, professionally, et cetera. And I think that's bad for our society. And I think the more that people don't speak up and the more that people are just looking out for themselves, um, this is going to continue and eventually the cancellation will come for them too. Um, and I think that, it, you know, so one thing you could do is to blame the cancel people. Um, another thing you could do is blame everyone else. It's uh, the overwhelming majority of people certainly don't believe that, uh, all of this stuff merits, you know, this draconian and punitive force. 
And, but people don't speak up about it. Right. I mean, I speak up about it and it's gotten me into some hot water with people, but you know, I still have a job and I still have a life. I mean, I haven't, my life hasn't been ruined yet. Um, but I think it's worth fighting for. Uh, and it's true of brands as well. I mean, you know, Amazon still publishes Mein Kampf, but they took down Dr. Seuss. So you're going to tell me that, you know, Dr. Seuss is worse than Hitler because you're not going to convince me about that. What, what, you know, what, 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 what's going on in my mind is that Amazon knows that if they cancel Dr. Seuss on their website, that it will make them look good, which means they will make more money. They're a business. So we need as a society to reevaluate our values. Do we just value capitalism? If we do, then fine, we'll just do whatever makes a buck. And if that means canceling everything to the appeasement of the crowd, fine. But do we value freedom of speech? Do we value um, people to make their own decisions about what is good and what's bad and people having their own, you know, their ability and autonomy and agency to recognize good versus evil? Do we believe sunlight is the best disinfectant for these things or do we need other people to tell us what's good and bad? That's my take on it. So you, you said you said a lot of things there, and I um, I'm I'll, I'll be honest I, I'm not entirely sure where I want to start, but uh, well let me let me ask you this: How deeply do you think you actually researched the different situations? And honestly, if you didn't look into them at all, it would you know save yourself some time because these are by and large like non-issues. This is not an indictment of like, you know, did you do your research on the Dr. Seuss situation? But just out of curiosity, like how much did you look into it? Not very much. So like the Dr. Seuss thing, I I heard actually that he was pretty bad. Like I I I mean if if we're gonna the thing is like I don't know that canceling is the I okay. No, okay. No, no, no. Anyway. So it, it's in it's in it's entirely fair. So the reason I wanted to bring it up. So the the two things that happened with Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head um, is, is large part the reaction that you've had is that, you know, it's absurd that we are canceling these things that have been around forever. Um, you know, there's, there's good and there's bad to go with it. I think the reality of the situation and Kelly, feel free to jump in here as well, is that actually no one, no one's really trying to cancel Dr. Seuss. Hasbro made a decision with Mr. Potato Head to drop the Mr. and expand the Potato Head family to just be the Potato Head family of brands. And Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head are still in there, but now you can have Mr. and Mr. Potato Head or something like that. But of course, when you sort of when it gets framed and and people are following what's going on in Instagram and all these other things, it's just like Mr. Potato Head's getting canceled and and rightly so. You read that headline, you're like, I can't believe that they're doing this to Mr. Potato Head. Like, why would they do that? He's and such it, a nice guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's like if they're going after Mr. Potato Head, like you said, you know, when when does it stop? They're coming after me next, no matter what, because Mr. Potato, if Mr. Potato Head is controversial, then clearly, like, I'm not going to survive in this society. But I think one of the the consequences of cancel culture is the reaction to cancel culture, which is also sometimes we like lose the what are what what's actually going on in this situation. I agree. I mean, look, so uh, you don't have to convince me about that. I, I think one thing that has been disheartening for me is the selective picking and choosing that uh, sides do, uh, like Team Blue and Team Red, and try how they try to frame the other. 
you know, the reality is, is that most people are somewhere in the middle and they're a lot more reasonable than whatever characterization is being brought against them by the other side. But what, what kind of frustrates me is that it creates a, something of a lack of consistency. So for example, like, let's say you're a moderate um, Democrat and people are criticizing AOC all the time. And like, you agree that maybe she says a few things that you don't like, but suddenly like you're defending her because you feel like you have to, right? Like you feel like it's like she's on your team and you have to defend her. And then it's like, you know, the same in reverse. It's like Ted Cruz, who's honestly, I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about that guy. I mean, he's just, he's the worst, but then you find people who are, you know, more conservative and like, they're like, well, why are we like getting mad about him going to Cancun? All these Democrat politicians did the same thing. And it's like, dude, that's like the one of like a dozen reasons that we're going to criticize Ted Cruz, you know? So it's more for me, I agree with you, Ricky. I think people are, uh, there's like a selective choosing about the airtime uh, people want to give to certain things and a certain ignorance they want to give towards other things as it, as it suits them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So, so I, I think I think that that's absolutely valid. I, what I want to actually talk about um, a little bit more, maybe than do- than Mr. Potato Head, is Dr. Seuss, because I actually think what we're what is what is happening with um, with Dr. Seuss is actually what we want to happen. So, um, although there were a lot of statements that Dr. Seuss is being canceled, that's actually not the case. What they are doing is pulling a certain collection of his books that did have sort of racist caricatures of Asians. Uh, so Asians obviously, you know, being depicted as cartoons. Um, so there's obviously going to be an element of, it would never be realistic then, but, you know, very uh, uh, stereotyped of, you know, slanty eyes and other, other things that you like today would recognize as, Hey, that's, that's offensive. That's not how all Asian people look. We shouldn't draw them like that. And obviously even, even worse stuff, um, uh, when depicting black people in, in some, in some select books. And so they've decided that those books, they're no longer going to publish. I think what you said about, um, you know, is it worse to take it off the shelf and pretend like it didn't exist or to like, say that, you know, this is how we used to do things. This was wrong. Let's be better now and, and have it there as a part of our history. So we understand, you know, where we were and where we are today. I think there's a perfectly reasonable argument there, but I think by and large, they are not getting rid of the whole of of his whole collection. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is that he sort of, as he got older, um, as a, an art author and a cartoonist also remarked on like, you know, some of the things that I did in the past, I probably wouldn't do those today. It was kind of how we drew those cartoons. That's like how you, you know, you depict a, a cloud with the squiggly thing. And this is, if you're depicting an Asian person, that's what you, that's what you did. And he's like, you know, I maybe not, would not do that anymore. And it's similar to like our, our like tweets and things that we might've put out five to 10 years ago, like if somebody saw one of those things and they wanted to like, you know, cancel my tweet and not me as a person, I would be happy to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I want to be, I agree with you on that, Ricky. So I want to be clear, like when it comes to, there's nuance to all of this. Right. And that, again, that's kind of what frustrates me is like, we talk about cancel culture as if it's this thing where if you cancel anything, you're bad or you're, or you're good, depending on what side you're on. I mean, I wrote about this in my book when I was talking, I actually mentioned can- cancel culture and I, uh, there's a chapter on empathy. It's called on empathy actually. And, uh, you know, uh, I talk a little bit about cancel culture and I, I say like, 
of course, there are times when we should cast people away. And I used Harvey Weinstein as an example. I think it's safe to say Harvey Weinstein has been canceled and appropriately so. He's a, he's a bad person. I think uh, that's universally agreed upon. And yes, there are situations where you know, if somebody has a series of repeated behaviors of being just a bad person, we probably shouldn't embrace them. Now, that, with that being said, I also think there's opportunities for education and improvement. Um, you know, I know we're talking about Dr. Seuss, so I hope you don't mind me like kind of uh, segueing somewhat here, but like we do it all the time. Go for there's it. There's a guy named Myers Leonard. I didn't even know he existed, plays for the Miami Heat. Honestly, he sounds Jewish based on his name, but I guess <laughs> he's not. Um, and I'm Jewish, so like I care about this stuff. Apparently, he used the K word, which is like the worst thing you can call a Jewish person. It's I won't equate it to the N-word because I think that the N-word is the the worst word you can really call anybody. But let's just say that for Jewish people, it is like that. Um, and, you know, Julian Edelman, uh, similar to how he responded to Deshaun Jackson last year, posted something today which said, look, you made a mistake, but I want to help you and educate you and like life can move on. Like that's how we should treat people to some extent. Look, I, I, I'm not happy about like, what come this over for Shabbat dinner. It'll yeah. Be he he literally said, I want you to come over for Shabbat dinner, but I like that. it's no different than Daryl Davis, who was the guy who he's a black man who got over 200 uh, Ku Klux Klan members to uh, part ways with the Klan. He didn't do it by like telling them they were bad people. He did it by befriending them. And they were like, Oh, you're a black man and you're really cool. Like, why did I ever, why did I ever join this like stupid clan? Um, so the way that you help people, like if, if they can be helped, right. I'm not talking about like people that are like Harvey Weinstein, people that are just bad and have serious, bad, you know, series of bad behavior, but people that make one mistake or they say something deplorable, like, I don't like the idea of them, their lives being completely ruined over it. This guy, Myers Leonard, I have no idea if he's a good or a bad guy. Um, I don't like what he said as a Jewish person. I find it offensive, but I'm not ready to cancel him. You know, I think that by the sounds of it, he said all the right things. And, it, you know, to me, he can be re rehabilitated and, and life can go on. So I agree with you. I would just say that, um, yes, there are situations where it is appropriate. There are also situations where I feel like it's clearly not appropriate, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It feels to me like the cancellation culture, maybe it's been... It's been building for maybe over the course of the decade, but it has really accelerated in the last year. And in thinking about it, it feels a lot like because people are quarantined largely over this past year and are spending more time on social media and less, uh, less time to have conversations with other people and less interaction with people face to face in general where the outrage machine gets kicked into even higher gear over this this past year where uh, you know someone else that we could throw out there like Chris Harrison who was the host of the bachelor now off off the bachelor and if you watched an interview he did with Rachel Lindsay he was definitely insensitive and is someone that probably does need to you know educate himself on, on some of the issues and insensitivity that he showed um, the reaction to that is now we should never host, host The Bachelor again, even though he's done it for 20 years and largely people of all races have seemed to say that he treated them well. And I don't know, I, I think it's, it just feels, and Jeff, you were kind of mentioning this when you're talking about social media in general, where it's like, it's such a tiny percentage of people that are truly outraged by these things that they want to cancel. 
And then on the other hand, there's also like this tiny percentage of people that are outraged at the outrage. And it's like the Dr. Seuss stuff when he was quote unquote canceled and Amazon took down some of his books. Well, then Dr. Seuss had 18 of the top 20 selling books that week too. Everyone's like, you're not going to cancel my Dr. Seuss. Yeah. And, it, and it just strikes me that like, it, it feels very much like social media drives a lot of this where the vast, I would say 90% of people, and Jeff, you kind of acknowledge this, don't care either way. And if you care, then you generally don't want to, like you said, ruin someone's life over one mistake as, as maybe even as terrible as that one mistake could be with the use of words and as hurtful as words can be. Like you have a track record of let's educate and let's improve people. And I, I, I don't know, I don't have like a, I'm not driving towards a, a point here, it, but as I've been considering what's happened over the past year in particular, it feels like maybe there are more people online, more people on social media, less people having conversations. And so more cancel culture. Yeah. Well, yeah and that, oh, oh, sorry. sorry go, go ahead, Jeff. Oh, okay. <laughs> if, if, I, I guess I will. Uh, yeah. So I guess, uh, so Brendan, um, that's why the response matters so much to me because like, I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I, you, you probably already know that I'm not a big fan of the New York Times based on things that I've already said. Um, and this whole thing with the guy, uh, McNeil, for the yeah. thing, you know, I don't know if you've read his response. I mean, anybody who read his response to his firing, anybody with a brain, in my opinion, sorry, I mean, I know that's maybe an insensitive thing to say, but I think anybody really, you know, after reading that would say maybe the New York Times screwed up. I mean, the New York Times has made a series of mistakes of inconsistency, first of all but kowtowing to the needs of their own staffers and whatever. But look at Politico with Ben Shapiro. They brought Ben, they brought ben Shapiro in to do a guest article. The staff revolted and the head of Politico said, go pound sand. Like this, you work, you work at a, a publication to publish different people's ideas. Sorry, you don't like this guy. I'm not apologizing to you. And it like blew over. Like I haven't heard anything about that in, in a long time. Same so, thing like, with like Joe Rogan and Spotify. Yeah, exactly. Like that was Politico and, and Spotify were like two examples of like, you know, Rogan won't let himself get canceled. I don't know. I, I haven't heard a thing about those whiny Spotify employees or those whiny Politico employees in a long time, probably because they didn't apologize. They just said, you know, you guys need to grow up and we're moving on. And I think because most people don't care, like you said, People just move, people move on. They don't actually like, I think there's more bark than bite when it comes to this, you know? And yeah. hundred percent. But to your point, when there is the bite is that people, like you said kowtow, I think is such a great phrase where these big corporations and because they're, you know, we live in a capitalist society, they don't, they want to move their products and don't want people, uh, you know, because they don't like who you're supporting. I'm not going to listen or read or buy from you anymore. But that when you respond so quickly, that's when it does feel like there's kind of legitimate outrage in, in the backlash to that. Yeah, that, that feels legitimate. But I, yeah, I totally agree with your point there. Yeah, Ricky, you were going to say something a moment ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's along on along those same lines. Just the the idea that we're we just like live in this cacophony of 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 small but very vocal minorities, essentially, you know, establishing this is the side of like good and righteousness and this is the side of evil. And that at, at every turn we see the world in this, in the black and white. And so we decide, you know, if, if you're, uh, if you're on, on the left, you know, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And if you're on the right, this is what you do. And right. Like if, if you feel like a moderate person, sometimes you're like 
forced into like, all right, well, if I have to pick a side that, you know, this is the side that I'm choosing, but honestly, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, and then of course, in social media, like scrolling through comments and things, it feels like everybody's doing this, but it's really like 10 people that just like write a million comments a day on the same types of things and get outraged. Like all, I mean, I think the, the thing that's been, the thing that strikes me so often is that like, I'll go on a very innocuous, uh, like account that I follow, like, like only in Boston or like the Boston calendar. And it's got like a picture of the Boston skyline with a something about like, Oh, you know, governor Baker's lifting some restrictions in like a month or something. And just, you know, he's only doing this because Trump's not there. And it's just like, just, I mean, this is, you know, I've, as I frequently do on completely off the rails from cancel culture, but just the idea of that, like, and if, if I look at any situation, I can decide what, what's wrong about what I hate about it, what I need to be outraged about. And then like social media is my outlet for that outrage. Um, <clears throat> I think before we wrap this section, I want to do uh, sort of one like mini in defense of cancel culture. Right. So I think um, I, and, I, and I'm not really sort of defending it against you guys. Cause I think you, what you have, brought to bear is, is, is really, you know, our common thinking, which is the outrage is really, you know, uh, reserved for us selective few. We do believe that certain people definitely should be canceled and that that's sort of plain to see that the majority can agree on that, but that there has been a certain amount of like collateral damage where people are kind of getting swept up in things that, that they are potentially not at all guilty of, or if they are guilty of the punishments, not fitting the crime. Um, but I think it's also important to note that we, we are living in a time that's so far and away different from the past. And it's not really to say that like the past was a great place to live in, right. Where some certain p- figures in power, Often they happen to be white male, but really like if we look around the globe that cancel culture is not just the US phenomenon, it's happening in all sorts of places. So it's really just people in power who hadn't been held accountable before. Now we have this mechanism to hold them accountable because there was no way to sort of, you know, adequately report a sexual assault to make sure that it got, it got investigated properly. Right. Or there was no way to essentially assert that you felt like, you know, there was bias against you in the workplace. If you were a minority, right. We didn't have any avenues until all of a sudden social media became that, that avenue that like, Hey, no one will listen to me in turn, like in inside. So, I can go to the outside and put that outside pressure. And that has, I think, by and large, done wonders. Like if you think about the structures that have been created at universities to deal with certain things like sexual assault or like bias in the workplace or things like that, like those outcomes of cancel culture, I think are good. It's just the the problem is, is that we go too far and like the pendulum has sw- potentially swung too far in the other direction. Um, but that's that that's kind of how it, it feels like we make the progress, right? Like we're in one direction, we go way too far and now we'll start to like, all right, now, now how do we rein that in? And like, I, I'm not necessarily sure as much as it it bothers me when when I hear of individual cases of people 
being canceled, especially like, you know, we didn't really even talk about it. The Smith College case where there were quite a few people who were canceled and they did a proper investigation. They essentially found out that there was like no, you know, there was no merit behind the accusations that, that the potentially a misunderstanding or somebody perceived a situation a certain way that that wasn't true, um, that there's no recourse for them. But like, you know, we accept collateral damage in a lot of different ways for a lot of different things. And this is potentially another area. And then, and, you know, maybe maybe we shrug our shoulders here, too, and say, like, overall, we're better off for it. It's the classic case where someone is accused of something and then the judge says not guilty. And then, you know, the lawyer turns and congratulates them. And he says like, well, where do I go to get my reputation back? Mm-hmm. All of those workers at Smith college who have many of whom are uh, like low income workers, but have worked there for 15, 20, 40 years in some cases as, you know, lunch ladies and janitors who were accused of being horrible racist now can't work there and in some cases are struggling to get another job um, for for nothing right and smith can move on and pat themselves in the back but like like you said it gets swept under the rug yeah I, it, it, well what's your defense what's your defense of cancel culture brendan i mean that that really frustrates me uh, <laughs> I, I will say like ricky's point though when it when it first like so much with social media when it first came out there were really good intentions and good goals. Like, like the me too movement, I think we can probably all agree has been largely successful and largely a really good thing for society. We probably need more, you know, women to speak up and, uh, and be able to tell our stories safely and hold men in power who are abusing that power accountable. Uh, you know, there are when people get caught in that accusations and Jeff, like you were saying earlier, not getting, or not getting a fair hearing, that, that's the part where I think we can all agree that that's not fair. And Ricky, I really love that pendulum analogy that you made. It, it feels like we there wasn't enough outrage about a lot of the injustices that were happening in the world for probably not, even, not only decades, but hundreds of years. Now it's swung so far to the other way where you don't even get fair hearings anymore. And hopefully, you know, within the next you know little bit, it'll settle somewhere more in the middle. I agree with both of you. I mean, I, I like the analogy Ricky gave. I also don't know that I, I also don't know that it's fair. Like when we talk about collateral damage, I think sometimes we talk about it as if it's like no big deal that there's a bunch of people that are just innocently getting screwed in all of this. Like just because you're a certain skin color or gender shouldn't mean and, you know, just because people who looked like you in the past um, shouldn't mean that you're just like collateral damage now. That's like the definition of sexism and racism, right? So like we want to avoid that as much as possible. You know, Ricky, you asked the question, um, you know, what defense could I give for it? I actually have a great defense for it. It's not a defense for it. Maybe it's an understanding of it. I, I said in my book, empathy, you know, I, I, these people drive me nuts. I don't like, I don't, I generally disagree with them most of the time. But I don't think they're evil. I mean, I think they're the things that they are doing are evil things. I don't think they are evil people. And there's a difference. I think they're misguided people. Um, but I think the people that are often partaking in cancel culture, like fully, right? Like people that are like full-blown cancel people, I think deep down they they want equi- equ- equality, equity, whatever. I mean, they want they want good things for everybody. So I think they're well-intended. I don't like the way they're going about it, but that doesn't make them evil, right? That's a benefit of the doubt that I extend to them that I wish they would extend to me. They often don't, but um, 
you know, just because it's one-sided doesn't mean it's it's not the right thing to do. I think you need to have empathy for people, even if you disagree with them, if you believe that their intentions are in the right place. And I will say that it's a positive thing I can say about those people. I think for the most part, they are absolutely well-intended. Yeah, I I I I think I think you're you're uh you're right to hone in on on that. Um and I do I do I did want to just I guess last last thing I'll say and because it's our podcast, I may get the last word. I'm, I don't know. If you, if you have a strong rebuttal, I'll, I'll let you do it. But um, the the point you made that like collateral damage is not something to to sort of say that individual people's experiences and their lives and livelihoods getting completely upended for something that they didn't do is not a big thing. It, it absolutely is. But I guess what I meant by that is that in, in whatever situation that you are, because we're human beings, we're fallible and we make mistakes, there's always going to be collateral damage, right? Like it was collateral damage before to give the benefit of the doubt that no racism was occurring or no sexual harassment was occurring. And we had a bunch of people who are, you know, not uh, not getting their stories heard. Mm-hmm. Like we have an innocent until proven guilty sort of uh benchmark in law. And I, I won't get too far into this before Kelly schools me with his, with his L1 knowledge here. But I, I, I personally think is that, that like the, the impetus behind that is we'd rather a guilty person be free than an innocent person sort of be punished for something that they didn't do. Um, but it has its, it has its consequences either way, right? Like if you flip the script on that, you can, but you know, you know, the, Either way, we're making mistakes, and and it really just depends on what side we're going to want to air. All right, uh, Jeff, before we let you go, let's get back to the book. So again, Authentic Selling, How to Use Principles of Selling in Everyday Life. Uh, you've weaved it in nicely to a bunch of stuff that we've talked about, but uh, it's not you made it clear, it's not just a book for salesmen. So if people are looking for the book or want some incentive to buy it, you know, give your pitch. Well, I mean, uh, we talked about Inception, right? So I guess my pitch would be if you enjoyed anything I had to say over the last like hour, then you know maybe there's some stuff in there that you'd enjoy. I mean, uh, I would hope that maybe it speaks for itself. Um, if it doesn't, then you probably shouldn't buy it. Um, but yeah, the book- Authenticity, baby. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's important. Um, but yeah, the book's available on amazon.com. It's uh, in audible format if you want to hear my lovely voice reading the book to you as you go to sleep or whatever. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's. I mean, I, I, I really. Um, it's gotten great, great reviews so far. I'm really pretty stoked on it. Um, like I said, it's if you work in sales, there's a lot of good tips in there. But if you don't work in sales, it's kind of a way to reshape the way you think about everyday discussions and problems and coming about them less with your intuition. Um, biologically, as humans, we have like this protective mindset to like protect our ideas and to like enforce our ideas on other people. And you need to reject that as much as possible uh, to be effective at like getting your ideas across. Um, so it can be helpful for anybody. And yeah, I hope people would enjoy it. Great. Uh, yeah, I, I look forward. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but once maybe the summer comes around, I'm excited to 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 take a read through it. And uh, we really appreciate having you on. You know, I hope this is not the last time we can come and have some of these conversations. Yeah, no, I, I love what you guys are doing. I think, uh, like I said, I, I've been a fan of you guys not just because you were my friends in high school, but because I think that sincerely, and I mean, I mean this, it might sound corny. I think what you are doing, uh, more people need to be doing. Uh, there's not enough people who are being proactive and trying to lead by example. Um, the respectful conversations, the respectful 
disagreement, compromise, showing people that it can be done um, is, is a great thing. Uh, we need more of that, not less of it. And uh, it's fantastic what you guys are doing. Well, with that, we'll call it. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know that you got a job, Miss Cheney, but your husband's heart problem's complicated. So the FCC won't let me be, or let me be me, so let me see. They try to shut me down on MTV, but it feels so empty without me. It was great having Jeff on the show and getting a chance to talk to one of our old high school classmates who we hadn't had a chance to connect with like that in a while. One of the things that stood out to me is was his like repeated emphasis on empathy and, and not being too attached to your ideas, which I think was a good reminder for me, not only politically in doing this podcast, but just some of you know these ideas that I feel like I need to defend where it's like, all right, just take a step back and try to listen and understand a little bit more. And while like, that's kind of the goal of this podcast, I guess, but it, it's, it's all, it, for me, it felt like a good reminder to, to do that more and to defend myself and, and be all up in arms less. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that that's certainly a line, like the detachment from the beliefs that you have that I, I don't know that I had really considered it in the, in the past, but I think it's, it's really good. Um, especially in this current environment where somebody's sort of stakes a claim that like, you know, if you're on the left, you believe this. And if you're on the right, you believe that if you can divorce yourself from that, then you can say, all right, well, here's an idea. Let me see if I like actually agree with it. Um, and I think it's harder in practice than it is like conceptually to do that. Um, but it's a, it's a really important exercise, uh, because, you know, and, and it's also okay, like if, if somebody who's, you know, quote unquote, on your side of things says something, and you don't know much about it, you don't have to, you know, like you also don't have to, to defend or, you know, not defend or whatever the case may be, you can be like, I, I don't, I don't know. And that's fine, too. Yeah. And then I guess a couple of final thoughts on cancel culture which that was a bit of a winding conversation. <laughs> Even by our standards, we got a little lost there. Yeah. I think a couple of things that are interesting, and you and I, I think have talked about this offline, but how cancel culture in some ways started on the right and now has swung all the way where it's like the left. Again, now that I'm using these labels that we just <laughs> we didn't use as much, but whatever, I'm going to. Uh, it's someone that stood out to me recently is like Eminem. I, he, I don't know if you've seen, he's been in the news recently again, where he's trying to, they're trying to quote unquote cancel him for all of his. <laughs> a lot of homophobic. Misogynistic, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of great. And I acknowledge they're not great. Eminem is my favorite rapper of all time. He's the one for me growing up in the late nineties, early two thousands. He was my guy and probably more formative than perhaps any other musician and in, in shaping kind of, some of my tastes, particularly in the, in the rap hip hop genre. Uh, so I love Eminem and I will you know, defend him and continue to listen to his music. But even in the nineties, he was being quote unquote, people trying to cancel him. It's just funny that at the time there were religious conservatives that were trying to cancel him for his, you know, his. I mean, uh, he's swearing his, all the time and then talking about murder and. Right. And someone on top yeah, of everything, like, the violence, like the abuse, all of those things that he was talking, the drug use, all of those yeah. things that conservatives are trying to cancel him. It's, it's amusing in some ways that 20 years later, it's come back around and 
you know, liberals were out there defending him as like free speech. Yeah, yeah. Now liberals are trying to cancel him for some of his other lyrics and conservatives like free speech. It's just like sometimes you just gotta sit back and laugh at the absurdity of it all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll also give a mini plug for Eminem, not for necessarily all of his content, but for just like the majority of his music that I listen to. That was the first CD I ever got. I remember I put the Slim Shady LP, I put it on in my car, er, in my car, in my mom's car. <laughs> she was like, like, hi, kids, do you like violence? My mom was like, what is this? Turn this off immediately. <laughs> yeah. The Eminem show might be one of my favorite CDs. Like if, if you had like a Mount Rushmore CDs, the Eminem show might be on, on that list. Wow. Uh, yeah, I will say one of the things, another thing on the Kansas culture that Jeff brought up that stuck with me was that the response of the people in power is is important and recognizing when you do need to act that they have people you know if individuals have a, a pattern of behavior or if their behavior is so egregious that you do need to act and cut ties with that person versus when the outrage is <laughs> more hysterical and that you shouldn't let's just say kowtow or you know, you shouldn't just immediately cut base, cut bait with people without giving people fair hearings. Um, and then anywhere in the middle where, yeah, we acknowledge what this person did wasn't great, maybe was actually particularly hurtful, but we want to educate that person, rehabilitate them. So we talked about uh, Spotify and, and Politico. It's, I want to talk about kind of the other ends of that spectrum where if anybody's been paying attention to like the San Francisco school board, the nonsense going on out there where they've been spending a lot of their board meetings in the last month trying to change the names of all their schools to try to take like Abraham Lincoln and Diane Feinstein, like off the names of their schools because of <laughs> essentially like trying to cancel them because of problematic, troubling history of Abraham Lincoln and Diane Feinstein, uh, as opposed to at working to get their students back into schools. And on the other side, like Fox news, if anybody's watched Fox over the last week, there's been little, if any, talk about the stimulus bill that we talked about earlier and normally what you would think was like look at the prices that's overbloated all of these democratic uh you know pork and pet projects that are being stuffed into this but all you've heard is like they're canceling dr seuss they're canceling mr potato head and it's like that's what we're that's what we're focused on right now and so i don't know it's more you just need like normal people and particularly people in positions of power, whether it's someone on the San Francisco school board or the director of content at Fox news. It's like, why, why are we focusing on this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's like the huge portion of like the power that, that all these organizations hold. Right. It's like, what are we giving airtime to? Um, and we, you know, regardless of whether or not you can, you know, cover all the issues, you can choose what to focus on. And I think, I think a lot of people could, could agree that, you know, we got some bigger fish to fry today than Dr. Seuss or whatever else is the, mm -hmm. is the outrage du jour. <laughs> I like that. That's Mr. Jop would appreciate my French there. You would like that. Like that. Right, shout out. We got a high school classmate. Shout out to the high school teacher. He was great. All right, buddy. Um, it's been a pleasure. Two episodes in four days. That's good of us. Yeah, it's honestly too much of you. Don't talk to me for a while. <laughs> That's nice. All right, buddy. See ya. See ya. We stay up all night 
on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away The morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.